0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode for you folks today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Lasse Clausen, founding partner at early-stage investment firm 1KX. Today, we'll be discussing the fundamental role of tokens in crypto, the advantages of tokenization, and how... 1KX works with founders to ensure Web3 ideas are economically sustainable. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently.
1: Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right?
0: Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com slash scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based Layer 1 blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at Flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of The Block's. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co terms service. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Sir, really appreciate you joining me on the show. It's been too long how i mean i mean i've known you for ages but you've never been on the show how are things going well first up
2: thank you very much uh, for having me yeah it's uh, i think it's about time uh, that we have a mm-hmm. chat on the show and um i think things have been things have been going well it was definitely an eventful uh, year last year uh, for everyone involved um, but you know we're standing and we're standing strong, and I think that alone is like uh, already a pretty big success metric in crypto. If you're just not blowing up,
0: mm-hmm. especially after 2022, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I have the show um, to sort of keep me keep me stimulated, as it were, because so many of the companies that I would spend my time writing about are are bankrupt. <laughs> I mean, they're just not. There's a they're whole. They're just not there anymore. They're just not there anymore, and in fact, I feel like as a reporter, I'm getting less and less pitches. Because, I mean, even if you're still kind of around, you're 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 not really. You kind of have your heads down, or trying to restructure, trying to rebuild, trying to you know the meme as it were build. Um, what's the dynamic like as a VC right now? Is it I imagine probably less pitches, but what what's the sort of day to day looking like? Relative to you know the more heady days of twenty twenty one and twenty
2: twenty two, so it's definitely calmer. Though I would say that you know those bull market days are definitely they are also they're a little bit insane to be honest. Just the mm-hmm. the, the pace is so frantic. Um, there's so many projects that I want to raise at very high valuations, and they want to raise a lot of money, and they want to raise mm-hmm. it very quickly. So just just saying that it is more quiet now or calmer now, it doesn't imply that it's sort of slow or dead. So there's still uh-huh. this, um, you know, good pace of of activity. Um, but it's much more focused. It's much more builders. It's like real entrepreneurs and all that noise, which, uh, to be honest, we find quite exhausting in a bull market. Um, is gone, and I would say, in terms of DNA, our firm, we're more, uh, we're definitely we're bear market guys mm-hmm. or, or folks. Uh, we really like the bear markets. Um, there, we uh, had the most sort of frantic or the fastest investment pace in the last two quarters last year and this year and this quarter as well. Uh, but it's also, we have the fortune that we're, you know, we're still around after a few cycles and, uh, we know that this is really the good time when to be very actively investing. Whereas in the, you know, prior quarters, uh, 21, uh, early 22, we were a little bit slower to invest because, you know, if you want to simplify it, whenever, whenever the meme and the dog coins are in the billions of market cap, uh, that's when you should probably take a little break, uh, in deploying money.
0: I think they're still like in the top ten right now, Doge and Shibu, uh, Shiba Inu. So maybe, maybe we should still <laughs> be slowing stop. down. Um, you have in your Twitter bio that you're um, a, a skeptical optimist. Um, one thing that I've been talking to VCs about in the you know past few months, in the wake of FTX is to what degree did maybe um, a lack of skepticism among VCs like feed into the frenzy. I guess it's like kind of a double edged sword, but I want to get your take on this. If you're too if you're too much of one, like if you're too much of a skeptic, then you miss those like moonshot bets. But if you're too much of an optimist, then you maybe find yourself in the seat of you know, let's say Sequoia with FTX as an example. How do you how do you think about that dichotomy? I I, I just find it fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's it's
2: I think it's a really good question, and it's for me it's the combo. So I you know as an investor, fundamentally you have to be an optimist, right? Uh-huh. You have to believe that the future is better than now, and that's why I'm taking the money that you know that I have now, and I'm deploying it, I'm putting it away into a project for a very long time because I think the future, when that unfolds, is going to be much better than today. So you fundamentally have to be an optimist. Um, This is also why I think traders are terrible investors. And with Three Arrows Mm -hmm. and then the Alameda portfolio, again, we've seen that they're just like terrible investors because I think as a trader, you really think in the world of zero sum. Mm -hmm. And again, coming back as an investor, you need to be fundamentally an optimist uh, so the future is going to be better, but I think also, uh, you know, I don't know what the policy here is with with the wording, but you know, if you're if you're seeing bullshit and people are getting behind that and supporting that, mm-hmm. that's actually going to stop the future from actually being better, or it's taking resources away from the things that would actually make the future better. And then also you know uh, i'm german by background and germans are very skeptical people and basically everything is bad until it's unequivocally proven that it's not bad <laughs> so i think i just have a healthy dose of skepticism in my uh you know in my sort of dna but again coming back i also like the american sort of optimism and and because and, if you don't have that you know you don't really get off the ground nothing gets done by people by the naysayers so I think the short form is to, to you know, balance the two. Uh, but I definitely think you also need to be very skeptical. And um, unfortunately in crypto, you do have, you know, you have the best people in the world in crypto and you also have the absolute worst people in crypto. And everyone sort of pile in there 24-7, uh, you know, 365 days a year. And so you also have to be very, very careful. Um, and there's some very bad actors in the space as well. And you got to keep that in the back of uh, your head. Um, and, uh, yeah, psychologically it's not easy because you have to be an optimist, uh, you know, you have to trust people, but you also have to sort of be prepared that this ter- person turns out to be a complete soci- a sociopath and psycho, and, uh, you know, it does absolutely terrible things. So, um, I guess it's not
0: easy being a skeptical optimist. Mm. Do you think that in addition to a lack of skepticism in crypto there's also a short-termism that maybe feeds into these hype cycles where in addition to folks not looking for the red flags, um, the incentives are kind of twisted by or, or at least altered by the fact that liquidity events happen much more frequently or via token, right? So you, you can be a VC in a project and get liquidity within a year or or even less, maybe. Whereas in traditional venture, you're waiting, you know, in some instances longer than a decade. Do you think that maybe feeds into also this, this mindset that you're talking about, which is you're, you're maybe thinking more of a zero sum trader than, than as a long-term investor and partner.
2: Uh, I think a hundred percent, I def- you can always tell that in a bull market, you know, the number of funds magically increases by, you know, 50 X, <laughs> you know, just a, a bunch of people band together, spin up a website, calling themselves a VC. Um, and yeah, you can, you know, the reality is you can make money this way, right? You don't really, mm-hmm. you know, that this is kind of vaporware, but, uh, as long as you're getting it. A, a, you know, at a certain price, and um, the writing's on the wall that this is going to list uh, at at a certain price times you know times X on Binance. You're going to make money mm-hmm. with that. So, unfortunately, that incentive is definitely there. Um, I think one way to just categorically stay away from that. So, we don't sell before three years. Uh, also, just because of short-term, long-term capital gains implications um, for American LPs, um, and I think that's generally a good rule of thumb. Just don't sell. You know before three years uh which isn't even that long right if you could look at the sort of seven to ten year cycle of usual vcs um but i think um space is much faster also the innovation is much faster everything's open source so you know one person builds it and a thousand others can use it and then iterate and innovate on it and then again that person that originally built it can also you know use that improvement that maybe other people did so i think the space overall just Innovates much much faster than anything else, and so I think a three to five year kind of time frame uh, makes sense for crypto venture. Mm. But yeah, if your time frame is like less than twelve months, then uh, you're probably in the bucket that you've described.
0: And a lot of people's were. I was at lunch earlier this week, and this guy asked me if he thought after all this. Mess like what is there really to, like what have we earned? I don't know if you remember back in 2017 when Vitalik raised that similar question. Um and a trillion dollar
2: market cap, I think, right?
0: If something like that, yeah. Did we earn it? I don't remember if it if it was a trillion or half a trillion. But now I guess the question is, what are we trying to earn? You know, what can we be optimistic for? What are the trends that you know? Outside of number go up, when will crypto to some degree or another have a meaningful impact on people's lives? Maybe it already has in some ways, um, but as an investor, like what are you optimistic for in that respect? I think
2: maybe uh, one step back, I think for context and framing, um, it helps to remember that the internet basically started in the 60s. And Mm -hmm. then for 30 years, nobody heard anything about it. Right. It was very few academics uh, tweaking the protocols and sending some emails to each other from their university labs. Mm -hmm. And then in 92, I think it was the US government sort of uh, allowed commerce on the Internet before it was banned. And that's when it, you know, sort of business applications uh, were allowed to develop and this whole thing became investable. And then you had this incredible, you know, mania as well, right? You had the first internet bubble. Um, Mm -hmm. And so imagine like the internet basically had a 24-7 price feed that was investable since the 60s, right? You would have (laughs) unleashed that speculative sort of energy, let me call it like that, um, you know, since then. And so I think this is kind of for better or for worse what happened with with crypto that you had almost since day one a 24-7 price feed on it, and it became investable. And so I think it really just is that that we're sort of unleashing or sprinkling that speculative or investment like energy on top of this space very, very early. So I think we're definitely getting our head ourselves uh, a lot of times. Uh, then there's also factors like the last bull market, you know, you had unprecedented uh, just liquidity injection from, from central mm-hmm. banks and these things. So they, I think they all come into play. So I would say the first answer would be like, um three trillion market cap no i don't think we've earned that just yet mm-hmm. um i think on a more fundamental level um you know the freedom to transact is a very uh you know fundamental democratic value and we've lost it since 9 11. i think really mankind has lost it if you're trying to move money in any way no other than there's very predictable sort of uh consumer behavior you will have problems and you cannot transact and that's in western societies right and then there are other um societies where you can't even really transact at all so i think that just on a very fundamental level the freedom to transact uh is just aligns very well with like western or democratic values and 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 crypto really is billing that or bringing that back Mm -hmm. Um, and I think another thing that happens because of that is, uh, you know, a financialization of basically everything. Um, Mm -hmm. You could basically think of NFTs as property rights, and now every bit, every piece of information could be an NFT, could actually have full property rights and can be financialized. And so um, what the final implications of that of society are is going to be interesting, but, and I can't really predict them yet, but it's definitely going to change. Uh, I think, society on a quite a fundamental level, um, just because you have a freedom to transact, but not just on traditional items, but really on anything, especially on the digital world, every bit essentially now is property and can be automatically transacted in any shape or form that people can think of and program.
0: So what investment opportunities are you excited for um, in 2023? What are the main categories yeah, there's there's also one consideration is
2: like uh you know, the earlier days uh we started the firm in 2018. Um we've been active in the space since before. Uh, you know, crypto was actually quite small. And so, you know, you had DeFi, but DeFi was very simple. It was very, very basic financial primitives, and mm-hmm. you didn't have to be a quant to really, you know, understand sort of the depth of what DeFi was. And now that the space has grown and and, and the diversity in terms of segments and industries has massively expanded. We also, you know, we see that we need to or that we focus on some areas where we think we have an edge and we can be maybe six months, maybe eight months, 12 months ahead of the market. Um, I think one of those is, is NFT financialization. So it's it's mm. a bit of a blend of uh, DeFi and NFTs. Uh, but if you think of NFTs as property, property rights, and then uh, the financialization of property uh, in an automated and programmable form. I think that's something we're very, very excited about. Um, and then you have a category that's actually been around for quite a long time is um, is what originally was Web3, right? There are some attempts to rebrand crypto into Web3, and I think there might be some benefits to that. Uh, that might be uh, for later in the conversation or another conversation. But mm-hmm. sort of Web3 originally was... Essentially, you could call it hardware resource provisioning, right? So it's core internet infrastructure services, which is essentially compute and storage, uh, but as decentralized networks. And uh, that concept has actually been around for quite a long time. Um, however, these projects they actually needed to build a lot of software. Um, you know, it wasn't just sort of DeFi summer, you take this smart contract and put it together with this smart contract, and boom, you've got a new financial primitive and off you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know these teams really had to build a lot of uh, infrastructure, their own L1 chain sometimes. Uh, and they sort of have come to market. Um, they've shown that this works. Uh, they show that they could execute. Uh, they show that it actually has brought a market fit and that people are using it and uh, that are using it in a growing way. And so I think that's another really good segment where, um, you know, it's not the newest. They tend to be maybe at a series A stage. They, most of the times they actually tend to be liquid. They're trading already. Um, but uh, it is also, I think the timing is quite good of that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it depends. I think like Arweave is a good case. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at it, Filecoin was essentially trying to replace S3, but decentralized. I think mm-hmm. there's definitely cases where the data sovereignty matters a lot, but speed wise and latency wise, it's going to be very hard to compete with like Amazon S3. Whereas, uh, you know, in an R Weave, which is basically archiving its permanent, permanent data storage, There, the use case is actually, it absolutely requires decentralization. There's no other way to do it. Uh, and so I think um, there's also some nuance to that. We're not just copying sort of like internet service providers uh, in mm-hmm. decentralized networks. But, uh, you know, the decentralization adds or actually becomes a core feature in, in some of those segments. Um, I think that's, so Web3, let's, let's still call it Web3 hardware resource provisioning, is mm-hmm. still a very interesting case. And then I think uh, actually sort of real, you know, on-chain gaming is actually also quite interesting. I know there's been a lot of sort of Web 2.5 uh, gaming mm-hmm. hype. Uh, mm-hmm. Not sure how excited we are about that. Uh, I understand that uh, you might be a gaming studio that has done okay for the last eight years, and all of a sudden you hear about a space where you you know you sprinkle a token on top and you can raise like twenty five million bucks, uh, and then you know maybe your token network becomes even worth more. Uh, but I think real you know on chain gaming where the entrepreneurs from like first principle design, redesign a game on first principles, just based on what blockchains allow versus just copying sort of existing games on chain with a token. And I think they the very interesting part is just the composability, right? That you know mm-hmm. your the gaming primitives uh, are actually composable and permissionless pieces of a, a puzzle or a machine. And anybody can take parts of that and combine it with other parts. And this is also what made DeFi very, very interesting, right? Where I think the people really, why people got so excited about DeFi was that they realized that you can really take parts of a protocol and interact with it with another protocol without having to know the founder, without, you know, negotiating agreements, going, drinking together, Mm -hmm. any of these things, you can just do it out of your basement and integrate it and use it in some form. And I think, that composability is uh, actually a killer feature of crypto for many different industries. But I think for, um, you know, on-chain gaming, it, um, it matters a lot. And actually the, the reason why X infinity actually really took off was because they had that. And then, uh, I forgot the name, uh, YGG, I think the Guild just basically discovered that these assets, you know, are permissionless and they can use these assets for financialization and, and, and things like that and create sort of, you know, uh, armies of players with that. Um, so I think this would be roughly like three areas that we're um, you know excited about. There's there's some others, but um, I think at this point we feel that those are the ones that we understand quite well and uh, we've been deploying into them for quite a while.
0: What do you think is the main benefit of composability as a game player? Because it I mean the DeFi. Aspect makes a lot of sense, right? You know, you d- again, you don't need to enter into a specific arrangement or business partnership to tap into the infrastructure of something like a Uniswap or Compound. Um, and if, if you're someone that's keen to spring up some sort of financial application, that's, that's a good shake. As a gamer, like how would you sort of um, articulate the benefits of composability as, you know, someone who just is in their basement as well, (laughs) playing games all day. Yeah, and I think we we hear a lot this like, oh yeah, you
2: can take that sword and you know you can take it to another game. Um, Mm -hmm. so I do people want to do that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure that the composability here matters that much for the actual user, for the gamer. Mm -hmm. But I think it matters a lot for permissionless innovation. And mm-hmm. as a general principle, permissionless innovation is extremely powerful. And when you have that for game developers, that they, you know, basically have a set menu of gaming primitives, uh, and they can, out of their basement, just play around with those and create new primitives, which in turn, then others can also just experiment with and use and, and you know, and integrate into new games. I think that's where the composability matters. So more on the supply side. So um, mm-hmm. I just think that there's going to be a lot more innovation in games and the type of games that you can play um, because you have permissionless innovation. Because if you look at uh, you know, if you look at games, I think the last 20 years, other than the platform shifts, right? It was like, okay, you play this on the desktop, now you can play this in the browser, now you can play this on your mobile mm-hmm. phone. I think overall the, the, the mechanics uh, of gaming in the last years, um, I don't know if there was that much innovation actually
0: Mm mm-hmm it's an interesting point um i do think that there's something sort of cool though from an individual user experience about maybe not getting to carry your sword across different games but at least getting to when you talk about the financialization of of all these things that have never really had a very clear value or maybe they had a value but not very not accessible value. Um, There is a neat future that may exist, may not exist where you can kind of leverage these things that you've worked for that didn't have value historically, like a, a sword, right. Where you could post it as collateral for some sort of loan. Um, because they do have value that just hasn't been unlocked, I find that really fascinating, right? And the, I mean, the
2: unleashing of credit is one of the biggest economic innovations that really propelled a lot of economic growth, right? That uh, mm-hmm. you have now, you have value, you have an asset. Just in the early days, that people were able actually to, um, you know, use the collateral of their house, the value of the house, to take mm-hmm. loans. Now that they, what you're alluding to is, yeah, are they using? That loan to go to Vegas, or are they <laughs> using that loan to, uh, you know, maybe start a dry cleaning business or something? Um, mm-hmm. That's, I would say, technology is basically neutral. It depends what we make out of it. Uh, but just mm. the fact that now it does enable it it, 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 you know, we enable people to do new things. I think is very powerful.
0: The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stablecoins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently.
1: Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currencies.
0: USDC is more than just a stablecoin. USDC is also an open source platform.
1: When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch switches hand, it's fine. Panel, right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form?
0: USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving.
1: A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists, so we approach this problem from a technology point of view.
0: Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based Layer 1 blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's State Connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer. Focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at Flare.network. What are your thoughts on like Web3 identity? I I mean I think it's
2: uh you know the last I don't know if you had this feeling, but you know, if you don't know where your passport is, uh, it's mm-hmm. one of the worst feelings you can have because your your freedom is basically curtailed. You can Happens move. to me right? every. Yeah, it happens
0: goes. to me all the time. <laughs> I'm
2: wondering where and, my uh, passport
0: is right now.
2: And if you're someone who travels a lot like me, it's really it's what it's really the feeling of. I don't want to say like you're in jail, but it's something. It goes in that direction that you just it's you lose your freedom training. basically. Yeah, and I think. Um, So yeah, we have a complete monopoly on identity. And again, if we are moving overall, uh, you know, historically towards more democratic, uh, uh, you know, and freer societies, I do think some form of self-sovereign identity is uh, is part of that journey eventually. Um, I think it's really hard. Anything with network effects is, or sort of a protocol, right, which is basically just a set of rules that everybody agrees on is, uh, you know, the larger the number of people that have to agree on this new protocol, um, the harder it is also to upend, right, and change it. So Mm. um, I think, uh, you know, with uh, zero knowledge technologies, you will also get to the point where you have privacy preserving identities. I think we're not just there yet. So I think now at this point, put your identity on the chain is actually quite dangerous. Um, But um, I think... You know, on a more philosophical or like high level view, it's. I think again, I think it aligns with uh, sort of democratic values of, of enabling freedom, freedom to transact, but also freedom to own your actual identity. Uh, technically, I think we'll get there in the next, maybe say five years, maybe even earlier. And um, it 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 does it does make sense. I think it will happen. It's something that basically uh, you know society or humans crave, uh, at least in in the West. But it is going to be monumental task because you need such a large, um, you know, number of people to, to buy in and agree this is, you know, and then they're going to fight. This is going to be on uh, Polygon or ZK Sync, right? Or is this going to be Ethereum on Solana? So you will have all these, like, implementation challenges. Um, but I think maybe with smaller countries, it'll go first, right? So Estonia had uh, something like this. Um, I have a, a, an Estonian e-resident. It's actually quite fantastic. You can open mm. up a company just by signing with a chip card, but the, it's also basically government software, right? So every time I'm trying to sign something for a company, it's just an absolute nightmare of updating drivers, and you know, it's just awful. You know, sort of, it's not even enterprise software. It's government software. It's even worse. So that's also the problem if it's, you know, if we don't have sort of a market bottoms up uh, uh, selection process for which technology actually gets used as an identity uh, and its government top down, it's going to be awful. I don't know if you're, I don't know if you remember, I think the the US spent $700 million on a website to compare health insurance. uh, And it was like three years late, right? Healthcare.gov. So Mm -hmm. uh, if if the government was in charge of actually creating a functioning you know, identity system, electronic identity system. Uh, and on that note, it's actually quite funny that the US actually doesn't have an identity system. You don't have IDs, uh, people use social security numbers, but they weren't never, they were never meant to be IDs. Um, so yeah. So hopefully we, we, we do find the tech is going to be ready, I think in the next couple of years, and we find a bottoms up sort of selection process for what is the technology, um, to host your identity that you control.
0: If I don't know um, if you've ever lived in the States, but I think most people can relate to, especially if you're in a more suburban area, paying your water bill. The websites typically for these like public utility outfits are, I mean, they need to be seen to be believed. It's like not even like out of the 90s, it's like out of like the 1960s internet. It's like they're unbelievable. (laughs) <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh,
2: I have family in suburban Texas, and yes, everything there is also like the U.S. is, you know, from the outside, the U.S. seems like you know the epicenter of innovation and technology. But there are large parts of the U.S. that are very backwards. People driving around with checks to pay each other uh, is it's quite. Oh surprising. my
0: god! It's actually, you know, it's pretty shocking in a way. Um, the extent to which all of these major Fintechs are based here with the exception of, like, let's say Stripe or Revolut or a lot of the different European um, neo banks. But I mean, the, the sort of like financial infrastructure is here. And the extent to which, I mean, not even just, I mean, not just checks, I mean, checks are still quite prevalent, but also just like. The friction of paying at different places and the lack of tapping and, you know, or touchless rather, um, commerce and and payments is just, it's just astounding, um, relative to the rest of the world.
2: I think, I mean, there's a lot of blockchain critics that are saying, like, why do I need this in the West? I can pay, um, I think there's a segment of the population that has zero friction in payments, but and uh, we actually recently um, had a conversation with a uh, international social app, and they said actually if you want to have a large international company that accepts payments from millions of users all across the world, it's there's there very very few people who can do it. There's very few companies who can do that. Even Airbnb is sort of internally, and I think Uber are considering themselves as payment companies now. So yeah. it is extremely hard. and that also you know uh, disallows a lot of innovation to happen because you need to have a lot of VC money and you need to be very large to actually operate across different countries and and receive payments. Uh, and, and, and so I think that problem is actually also still there. So I don't think you know I'm um, you know, I'm not one of those people that says we don't need crypto payments. I actually think uh, there are very large industries and segments and countries that massively benefit from it.
0: Yeah, just the frictionless na- of it, frictionless nature of it. I I still have to pay. I pay my rent in New York with checks. It's it's um, I, I take pictures of them and email it to my landlord secretary. <laughs> I would much rather just send him some USDC if he had a wallet that would take um, no time at all. I was helping a friend um, rent her house out for for a few weeks, and the guy paid me in USDC. It was simple, seamless, mm-hmm. easy. Um, maybe we could talk about like the blockchain layer one wars. That was kind of a story last year. How do you see that shaking out this year? And is this an area that you're playing? Like, do you are there specific layer ones that you back, or is it more um, you know companies building in, in crypto?
2: I think for us, um, you know, sort of the where the innovation will happen is where most developers are organically drawn to and are active. And they're, you know, as co-organizers of ETH Berlin, ETH Lisbon since 2018, Mm -hmm. Uh, we've just seen this incredible draw of like very creative developers and engineers to Ethereum. It's just been, Mm -hmm. and it's organic and they on their own dime fly halfway across the world to, you know, sleep on the floor for three days to participate on a hackathon. And so we've saw that very early. And so very early sort of focused our efforts on Ethereum as like a generalized smart contract platform, um, mm-hmm. and then sort of, you know, very specific L1s with very specific, different, um, you know, use cases, something like an weave, which is just sort of permanent data storage, completely different sort of use case. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the... The, I mean, it's interesting. I think these L1 investment narratives, for some reason, they just are so easy and so many people jump on them because you have this. Well, Ethereum does 15 transactions per second. This one does 1,500. So, therefore, it's, you know, that many times better and it should be that times worth more. I, I think that's really how simple it is. I'm still trying to wrap my head around why these <laughs> L1 narratives are working the way they are. Um, I think there, if, if something is like generally different, differentiated architecture in an attempt uh, to scale without just you know yeah putting one of the le- levers down of like you know security, decentralization, and speed. Um, so yeah, I mean you know an EOS is very fast because it was just 21 guys who turned out to be colluding <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so there's a reason that Ethereum doesn't have just 21 nodes. So I think if you have a, a genuine attempt at this. Um, of uh, solving this scaling trilemma without sort of compromising one of those severely. Uh, and they're a big sort of zero to one is, is, is is zero knowledge proofs. So I think, um, it's, I think this year, next year will probably be more about different layer twos and sort of optimistic rollups versus zero knowledge based rollups. Um, full transparency, our bets are on zero knowledge, um, based rollups, particularly ZK sync um, Mm -hmm. because generally we prefer when the security comes from cryptography and math versus sort of crypto economic assumptions, games, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people get surprised in hindsight, how people act at the end of the day, it's very hard to predict. Whereas math is, you know, as long as you get, as long as you audit it, right. You know, it's, it, it, it's going to do what it, what it, what it will do. So, um, so I think. Maybe, uh, you know, but I've also many times overestimated the market. So maybe we're going to go back to L1 uh, war uh, narratives again. Um, I'd be a little disappointed if that happened again because I think it's just not exciting and I think it's not maybe putting the dollars in the right place. I think it really should be on the sort of L2 and L3s um, and maybe some of the infrastructure that connects uh, Ethereum with an L2 with an L3. Um, yeah, and that maybe one or two very differentiated uh, you know, L1s, um, it's going to be a big space. So I think there's definitely space for that.
0: Do you think that there's room for um, different scaling solutions to coexist, whether it's CK, optimistic roll-ups? I think so. Uh,
2: similar to L1s, you know, you have, um, you have a lot of different use cases for blockchain and some of them, not everyone is, you know, $20 billion moving in and out of a DeFi smart contract. Right so the security requirements for some of those are just lower I'm just sending you know a $50 NFT back mm-hmm. and forth I'm just playing a game where you know my game assets are like worth $5 maybe $20 I don't think that needs to be on zk sync um, and that is very well um, you know I think it's very uh, comfortable in 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 the different L2 maybe L3 with maybe less security assumptions Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it's still permissionless and, you know, you can move it in and out and move it to maybe then a different ecosystem, a different L2 where, you know, there's more liquidity, uh, for financialization, etc.
0: Yeah. Understood. And why do you think, um, even still comparing all of them, ZK sync over scroll or Arbitrum? What's, what, what are some of the advantages you see there?
2: I think the main thing is the difference is going to be uh, speed, cost of transaction, and security. And so I think, um, you know, you'll have uh, generally things that are less secure, will be, can't afford or can manage to be cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the same, you... Are you doing transactions on Ethereum L1, which you know now costs you a token transfer every five dollars? Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're sending twenty million bucks around, maybe you want to do that on Ethereum. You don't want to do that on, I don't know, Polygon. Um, so I think that's that's really going to be the differentiator. Um, the network effects—they um, matter less than we thought, to be honest. Um, you basically, what turned out to be that large DeFi protocols, for example, they're just going to be on every L2. That they can right so if you look at uniswap it's basically deploying everywhere uh and then could there be a mode of uh of of an l2 that attracts most sort of ltv that has the most network effects the best liquidity Uh, i think that could happen because you but it will be more driven by professional actors right professional market makers professional traders where these you know uh, the slippage of a few basis points difference does actually matter To those. I think, Mm -hmm. I don't think it matters to retail participants. As you can see, a lot of people are very happy to just trade on MetaMask because they're too lazy to type in uniswap.org and trade there directly. So I think, um, you know, so I think you will have sort of these different ecosystems. um, Maybe one where that's sort of the DeFi hub that probably needs the highest security, that needs the most liquidity, and then where predominantly professional, uh, you know, actors are taking advantage of the increased network effects and the cre- and the best liquidity
0: and as things become more scalable, more affordable, more secure, i'm sure it could be an attractive opportunity for web2 players to maybe wade into the crypto world or the token world if you if you would what what do you think that like we often talk about like web2 or rather the traditional world getting in vis-a-vis investing in buying these tokens, but do you think it's possible for them to sort of become Web3, right? For a Uber, or that's often the example used to then almost sort of become Web3 and deploy like a, a token model?
2: I think it's the ultimate innovator's dilemma. And not only are you basically, ideally, completely giving up your margins or even any profit, uh, which would already be a long stretch. And we've seen historically that this even happens among companies they don't see, uh, or they see actually markets or they see, you know, uh, a verticalization of their product line, which is a much lower margin. higher scale but lower margins then they just don't go for it because they don't want to cannibalize their margins right and then a young nimble startup comes in and is happy with the lower margins and just basically replaces them i think here you have that plus uh it's i mean it's virtually impossible for uh, you know a listed company with uh, fiduciary shareholder duties uh, to say hey guess what we're an open source token collective now and uh, we're not going to really charge any fees on this thing. Uh, it's going to be indirectly financed by tokens that maybe suppliers of the network need to stake. Uh, I, I, so I, I think that's literally impossible. So it does seem like really the ultimate, uh, uh ultimate innovators dilemma, but you, you know, you can see like, um, uh, an, an, Instagram implementing, uh, Polygon, Facebook connect and arweave uh, for their NFT, uh, created creation and marketplace infrastructure. Um, So I think they will, you know, and they have uh, jumped in Mm -hmm. and used it and adopted these technologies, uh, but a little bit more in the background, um, not necessarily in a way that the end consumer is interacting with it directly.
0: So what else are you excited for uh, in 2023? I think we are actually only now starting
2: to have infrastructure for... For actual depths that touch end consumers and mainstream. I think this last bull market just came way, it came for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't come because end consumer user experience in crypto was there. And I would say make the case that now with, uh, you know, I would say ZK based L2s and then their L3s, which are really, you know, sub sent uh, transactions and speed and scalability. Uh, you actually now is the time for an app developer to come in and build their whole game their whole social app their whole whatever app completely on crypto i think that's just now and so um for them to start and really build on it and then you have things like you know wallet connect that really enables um i would say consumer grade um user experience custodying their own keys Right. So you have yeah. you download one of the many, many beautiful, easy to use uh, mobile wallets and there's new ones every day and they're and they're great and they're innovating, competing with each other. Your keys are stored in the secure enclave on the iPhone, which is quite good. Um, and if you lose your iPhone, you know, it's back up and encrypted in your iCloud account. And then Apple pushes you towards a pretty decent 2FA. Right. So you can only restore if you lose your phone, you buy a new iPhone, you can only restore that iCloud account and those encrypted keys. If you, uh, you know, permit it or confirm it on some other Apple device or some other form. Um, so I think we're getting, or Apple's gotten us to a pretty, you know, easy enough and yeah. secure enough, uh, consumer experience of custodying your own keys and really actually controlling your own funds and don't have to send them to FTX and many other shady c players. Cause there again, you have, you know, complete counterparty risk and it's unregulated, which is kind of the worst of both worlds. And so you can actually custody your keys, it's, you know, it's usable enough, it's also safe enough. And then also considering that now we're having, you know, libraries, uh, uh, tooling, infrastructure to make it very easy for an app developer to actually uh, deploy on blockchain. And then on the L2s and L3s that are coming up now that are launching sort of, I would say, within the next year. So I think that's that's exciting. Um, before, honestly, you know, if you you were an, an end consumer and you got forward into buying NFTs because your friends made money with it and you had to deal with like a $200 transaction to buy an NFT on Ethereum L1 and you had to click around with your ledger and the MetaMask wouldn't work and then you had to go to Firefox and try it there. I mean, you yeah. know, we, we, we all know this. It's, just, it's not a sticky experience. It's not fun. And then on top of that, your NFT goes down, you know, 80% in value. Like, it's just, this is not this is not consumer experience. So I think we're, that's, that's what I'm excited about. I think we're, we're getting, I also, however, I also quote me on this in three years. I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to be the lightning guy that says it's just too early, you know, and uh, you know, who says that forever because they've basically been saying that for like, you know, 10 years. So, um, so, you know, quote me in three years, hold me accountable for that. Um, if by then it hasn't happened, then I think we need to, uh, Yeah, we need to, uh, as an industry,
0: maybe reflect. What happened? What H A. (laughs) Well, sir, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be on the show. Appreciate the chat. My pleasure. Always nice. Absolutely. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Let's send them to your fancy
2: website. Uh, We do have actually a nice website, finally. I think we've done four years uh, Uh, without a website it's uh, 1kx.network and i think that's the best way to do it and then for uh, you know updates we're on twitter as well and you can find the link on our
0: website and there you have it thanks again
2: thanks frank bye-bye
0: the scoop will be back for you again with another great guest have a great day All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.